Excellent. Well, we'll make a start. Um, and uh, it's great to welcome so many of you back this week. I wasn't sure if after last week we would be down to two or three, because um, it, was, it was quite a, a big session. We Obviously, we laid down quite a big uh, foundation framework for the work that we're going to be doing over the next three weeks. And um, a bit of feedback last week was that there weren't enough breaks, which I appreciate. I'm sorry for that. Um, in half an hour's time, at quarter past eight, I'm going to give you a five-minute break to uh, stretch your legs, to go and get another cup of coffee, to use the loo, uh, and uh, we'll just have, um, just so you've got something set in your sights. Just as we um, begin tonight, obviously, if you're new, welcome to you. Um, I'm going to, I've got a recording of the last session, uh, which I'm not going to publish uh, just on, on the internet uh, freehand, but I'm going to give um, access to you guys who want, who want a copy. So if you just let me know at the end of the session tonight, if you'd like to hear session one, I will email you a copy so you can, you can have a listen to that. Um, just a brief recap. So last week we painted quite a broad picture of the emotions. And we talked about uh, the cycle of emotions. Remember the circle of emotions? Has anyone had a good week expressing any of the negative sides of the circle? Um, has anyone had a particularly good week expressing any of the anger, fear or sadness? Yeah, some people. Did anyone feel a little bit more liberated than before to be a bit more authentic about their anger or a little bit more expressive? A few nods from the crowd. And, 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 and the plan, that, that you know, what I would want to kind of encourage you towards is this idea that it doesn't matter whether or not you picked up all the theory last week at all. That's not important. What's important is that you let the stuff sit with you and that the things that are significant and important, they're things that you will pick up. So this isn't like an education, this is an experience. And it's like when you go to a theme park, some rides you'll go home and you'll really remember, other rides you will have been on but you've just totally forgotten. Don't feel like you have to have a complete experience. It's not intended to be uh, an education on that level. So we, we talked about the, different, the six different pieces of emotions in the round and how they were valuable. We talked about um, being reflective versus being reactive in the way we process information. If you remember that, we talked about how we process information differently depending on our experience of life and childhood. We talked about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which was important. Do you remember that we do many of the things that we do out of a place of need um, and that we're, we're always sort of responding to this idea that we can, we can kind of get better and um, we have a hope for that. And the three components of emotion, subjective experience, psychological response and the expressive component. If I tell you all that you've just entered some strange kind of lottery experience and you've, by being here tonight you've all won a million pounds each, just process that information. Now straight away quite a few are smiling, they're the positive and optimistic ones, the rest of you are very sceptical and don't think that this is true and you're absolutely right, the sceptics are true. Um, but what you've just done by smiling and laughing, those of you who have just smiled and laughed, is that you've, you've had a stimulus, uh, that's my delivery of that message, you've processed that message internally, you've attached value to that message, and now you've made a physical response to that message. So it's actually affected your emotions. And the process of cognitive behavioural therapy is this idea that what we think with our minds affects uh, how we feel uh, in our bodies and how we will ultimately go on to behave. So if I give you good news, like you've just received this pool of a million pounds each, you physically and emotionally respond positively. Whereas if I give you bad news, 
you will physically and emotionally respond negatively. So the principle of cognitive behavioural therapy, remember from last week, this idea is that actually our thoughts, the way we receive information, and the way we then process that information has a direct impact upon how we think and feel. Does everyone get that principle? That's the really, really key principle. And then we talked about how we filter information. So if I give you good news, but you carry it in a really negative cup, then actually you can filter good news into bad news. And that means that you can never actually find the benefits of good news being received. So if I tell you you've won a million pounds, of course we go back to the same analogy, if you actually had, you could receive that information, you could process that differently according to your own emotional style. So you could process that information and think, oh no, what a hassle. People are just going to want my money, it's going to ruin my relationships, I'll probably lose my job, I might end up bankrupt at the end of the day because I will have spent it all you know, on whims and I will have lost all my friends and I'll end up living on my own in a squat in Hackney. Okay? So that, that filter, that idea of a filter that we apply to the information we receive has an effect. It's not just good news that will make us feel good, it's good news well filtered that will make us feel good, or it's bad news well processed that can still make us feel good. So how you receive the information is as, if not more important than the information itself. That's how some people who have received terrible information can remain very, very positive, and other people who receive marginally difficult information can become very, very negative. A good example of this is um, Frida. I know she won't mind me mentioning her, but uh, Frida Meadows, great saint, member of this church for many, many years, uh, was also uh, ordained uh, a priest here, and sadly some of you guys I know have joined the church since she's left. But uh, Frida had terrible news. She had an operation that went wrong, and she lost her leg at the knee or just above the knee, actually. What was remarkable about her experience was, was that actually the way she filtered the information, the way she received it, and the way she framed it spiritually meant that actually, even though she went through this extreme suffering, and she hasn't diminished the suffering, she actually was, she's retained a very joyful countenance. And that's been a really, really amazing blessing for many people who've been going through difficult things. She's not denying the pain or the suffering or the disappointment of her experience, but the way she's, she's, she's processing that information is leading her to a place of emotional joy, not emotional sorrow. So how we process the information that we've received will have a very big impact, impact upon how, on what we think and feel. That's the key principle there of cognitive behavioural therapy. And then we introduced the idea of anxiety and how anxiety affects how we process information. And we remember we talked about uh, Freud's daughter and all the ways in which we could get away from the information that we didn't like. We can suppress it, we can deny it, we can create reaction formation, we can push it away, uh, we can pretend it's not happening, we can invert it into other people, uh, but ultimately it's still there. And we came at the end of the day to kind of have an idea of a kind of holistic view of personhood where we could see the emotions, we could see the way in which our emotional styles have been formed out of damage and need, we could see the interplay of anxiety on our personalities and how in which personality styles were born often out of strengths and weaknesses and how we can react or play out our personalities in the workplace. And we talked about the shouty person, the happy, funny person, the person who's very introverted, and how all of those things were often related to uh, fear or style. 
Now, this week I said we were going to be much more applied and talk about our pasts. So the key learning point tonight is understanding how our pasts interplay uh, with our present. And I want you just to think for a moment about this idea. If we just begin uh, by, by having a kind of moment of kind of conscious awareness of how our experience of one person in our lives has had an impact on our present today. So I want you to think about initially one person who you admire from your childhood. So I want you to pick out someone in your history who you would say has had a very positive impact upon your life. And the earlier you can go, the better. And I would prefer it if you avoided mother or father. Okay? So just just take a couple of minutes in the quiet. Pick out that person. Who is it that's influenced you positively? Now, we're going to become a bit more definite. You've hopefully got a person in your mind. And I want you to estimate in your mind, just for yourself, what what the key values that that person presented to you, the key values, what did they embody to you that had a positive impact upon your life subsequently? Try and pick out one or, there might be one or two things that you can remember about them. Now I want to ask you, when you're thinking about those one or two things, If you could put your hand up if it's a behaviour, something that they did, then I want you to put up your hands when I ask you to. But if it's a way that they were or an emotional expression, I want you to put up your hands laterally. So if it was something they did, if it was a behaviour, like if they were very good at football, then I want you to put up your hands. If it was an emotional expression, if it was a behaviour emotionally expressed, then I want you to put up your hands. So hands up if they impacted you strongly because of a behaviour like the playing of football. And put up your hands if it was an expression, a value that they carried. Great, okay. So what that shows us from the four or so people who were expressing something physically, the majority of people remember the benefit from an emotional or stylistic expression that someone carried. Now, the learning point with that, that would be that we're much more receptive to the overall expression of emotional styles than we are to performance gradient. So when we think about the people who've influ- influenced us most powerfully, it's nearly always the emotional influence that they've placed on our lives rather than the physical or the material benefits that they've offered us which have the greatest impact. So if I was a championship footballer and I happened to have been friends with Pelé, I might well say that Pelé is my greatest influence because he showed me how to really play football. That would be a demonstration of the physical demonstrative behaviour. But for most people, they would actually remember the emotional impact that someone's had on their lives, the emotional influence as the greatest steering point. So I would, for example, recall a particular teacher at school who I don't remember for his teaching, but I do remember for his pastoral care of me. Yeah? And actually, what you might find is the footballer that talks about Pelé doesn't talk about Pelé's footballing style. He talks about Pelé's fathering of him, his support and his love of him. 
So those of you who talked about behavioral styles might even think about revising your view and say, well, actually, they were good at this, but actually what I remember about them was that they were good at that and they chose to invest in me. Now, it's a simple illustration to demonstrate how emotional clues from your past and emotional influences from your past will continue to have a strong influence on your emotional behaviours today. If these are positive uh, experiences that you've had historically, maybe 20 or 30 or 40 years ago, they're the positive influences that you remember well. If we're going to flip the script and then start talking about negative influences that you've experienced, then we might say actually that emotional negative, emotionally held negative experiences can even have an even greater impact on your life today. So when people talk about their pasts, and we talk about the experience of the past, people say, oh, I really remember. If you, you, know, if you have one of those nights with friends, you've had a couple of glasses of wine, maybe it's a school reunion. You, ta- you start talking about your experience, and those memories come back extremely powerfully, don't they? It's amazing how you can recall things uh, from your childhood. And um, wh- what I would say to you in principle is that your mind is an incredible computer, but there are no delete buttons. Okay? There are no delete buttons. Everything that you've ever experienced is stored somewhere in your mind. Now, you might not be able to access that storage, but actually those memories and those experiences are imprinted on you, and there's no way of expunging them. And in my view, one of the greatest lies that's sold in society at large is that time heals and that you can forget and you can get away from yourself. And I think this is also a bit of a myth in churches that I'd want to repeal and say to you, actually, the idea that time heals or that you can forget your experiences and that they no longer have an impact on you, I don't believe is true. I believe that God can restore and heal you from your experiences in the past, but I don't believe that God, if you like, uh, will wipe away your memory banks Okay, he can, he can deal with the emotions of the experiences, but he doesn't take away your experiences. I'm just going to introduce you to a little bit of um, this, a little bit of Freud. Uh, this is the kind of a Freudian uh, outlook on the consciousness. And um, this is the kind of, this is like the blueprint, if you like, for a lot of psychoanalytical views towards the self. All of these things are models. They don't have great power. They're just sometimes helpful as a tool to understanding how the mind works. And this is the iceberg model that Freud kind of coined this, this expression. This isn't, he didn't use the iceberg model, but he used these different types. And it was helpful uh, to, to place it onto an iceberg to give you an expression of how this works in reality. So this is our daytime here, and this is you and me having, a, having an experience. This is where the seagulls are flying, and this is the top of the iceberg. And the conscious is your mind right now. You're conscious of me being here, and you're conscious of the thoughts, maybe about what you had for tea, and maybe you're conscious of the fact that you might like to go and have another cup of tea in a few minutes. Um, but your conscious mind is what you're alive to right now. And then just below the conscious mind, and just this is the waterline here, we have the pre-conscious mind. And th- th- these are things that we could potentially recall in a moment. So I could ask you, did you lock your car? And you could probably tell me, yes, I think I did. I'm pretty sure I did. Or I could say to you, you know, what's the name of, of some particular person in the news today? And you'd probably be able to recall that too. Your pre-conscious mind can be easily accessed uh, when you begin to try and draw on the information I'm trying to get you to recall. 
you'll know your pre-conscious mind quite well because if I ask you for the name of that Canadian singer who's quite famous and all the women really like, your mind will be going, oh, what's his name? Oh, what's his name? Now, you, you, some of you will know who this person is, and some of you will kind of remember his name is like a Christmas bauble, but you won't quite get it, and then you'll forget about it for a minute, and then suddenly, ten minutes later, it will go, Michael Bublé, and it will just come out of, your, out of your mind. It will just pop out like that. Now, what's happening in that moment is that your pre-conscious mind is processing information that your conscious mind is not aware that it's processing. Have you ever had one of those experiences? Hands up who's had an experience where they've been thinking for something, or the name of someone, or where they've put something, and then suddenly it will ping out of their mind, most people. So that's your pre-conscious at work. And then behind your pre-conscious, at the very bottom of the sea, is your unconscious. And these are all the things which we can't recall and that we're not currently aware of. And the unconscious is like this huge log of memory bank. This is like the Apple iCloud, but just for you. And it's all somewhere in the depths of this sea. It's all logged and registered, but you're not consciously or pre-consciously aware of it. Okay? And we've just got the non-conscious here, which is basically stuff that's not really to do with you. Okay? The unconscious mind here is where the stuff is stored. Now, the principle of psychotherapy, and we're not going to be doing psychotherapy here, we're just explaining it, is that information held in your unconscious mind is having an impact on your pre-conscious and your conscious. So what's actually going on in here has an impact on what's going on here and what's going on here. And, and that, this is a really important principle because people say things like, oh, it's all in the past now. Um, that's an interesting idea. It's all in the past. Does that mean it's no longer relevant to the person? Well, some things have different relevances at different times. But the idea is that, that, that sometimes our pasts, particularly those things held in the unconscious, although not necessarily sometimes things held in the pre-conscious, can have an impact on our day-to-day -day experiences. Now, it's not necessary or important to start wandering around in your unconscious mind trying to think, oh, I wonder what could cause me a problem. I better kind of go on a, like, um, a kind of some sort of you know, mind-finding exercise to anything in my unconscious that could be bad for me. That's not how this stuff works, okay? And that's not important. And actually, spiritually, I'd say that's unhelpful. Because God just brings to mind, I think, sometimes those things that we need to deal with. But what we do have to be aware of is that sometimes things do need to be dealt with that come out of our unconscious into our pre-conscious, and certainly when they come into our consciousness. Things come up and come out in their own time. And as a Christian leader, I'd say that the Holy Spirit very often, at the right time, brings up things out of our unconscious minds, experiences, ideas, thoughts, and feelings, which he is then leading us to shine a light on and to begin to kind of work through. I would say to you as well that there is value in this material. God hasn't actually called us to live every moment, moment by moment. If you look at the, the, the words of the Lord in the Old Testament, he often says, remember your forefathers, remember the experience of your forefathers, remember your time in the desert, remember when I lead, led you out of Egypt, remember when I provided for you. He's actually saying collectively, remember your history because your history will have an impact on your present. And much of the problems, if you read the kings or the judges, you'll see that many of the problems that Israel faces are because they don't 
don't go back to remember what happened before. And actually, they live in the moment, uninformed by their pasts. You'll all know someone who seems to be always in a cycle of falling down. And you maybe spent time with those people or that person where they seem to be making the same mistakes over and over and over and over again to the point where you're going, is there a pattern here? Now, some younger people who are still kind of coming to terms with themselves can find themselves falling into this, particularly where you see the same behaviours and the same mistakes wheeling over and over and over again. Is it coincidental? Is it just held up here? Possibly not. Maybe there are things down here in the unconscious which are leading people to repeat behaviours. I would argue that we all get involved in this idea of repeating behaviours because of unconscious material, because I've experienced that myself. And then we're going to explain a little bit more about how that might look practically. So, let's do, um, take a little bit of the uh, idea of Pavlov's dogs, the kind of idea of, of training. Has anyone got a pet dog? Anyone got a pet dog? Is it well trained? Is it husky? I think I've seen you... Oh, is he? Oh, I'm sorry. What have you got now? Okay. But well, is the, dog's, the dog's trained. Yeah. And did you train the dog? No. Oh, okay. So you got it. Who else had a dog? Yes. Nikki, what's your dog? A spaniel. A, oh, a spaniel. They haven't got particularly big brains. I've got, my mum's got a spaniel. It's better, I think a spring is better than a cocker, which my mum's got. It just doesn't know where its tail is. Um, so have you, tra- have you trained your dog? Okay. Robert, did you do some training? No. No, you didn't? Okay. Right, now, when you think about dog training, um, my, my mum has unsuccessfully trained a number of dogs. <laughs> and uh, the most unsuccessfully trained was a, was a kind of basset hound who used to howl like a wolf and um, run around. It was completely crazy. He used to run off all the time. And the idea of dog training is that, that you know, that, that the dog has a negative experience, the lead is pulled tight or, it, you know, it gets a clip around the ear, and uh, when it's starting to run away, and then the next time it goes through the gate, it suddenly thinks, hold on a minute, I've had a negative experience by running through this gate and howling into the darkness. Actually, I need to stop, turn around and come back into the garden. And, and that's a negative imprint. And then a positive imprint is that actually a dog whistle goes and then a small <coughs> chalky treat is provided for the dog and then the dog comes back because it knows it's going to get a benefit. So there's two sorts of imprinting experiences in training. One is a negative experience, a punishing experience, and one is a positive experience, it's a reward experience. And that's where we get the idea of the carrot and the stick. Now, in our, in our infant development, in our child development, we will have all experienced a level of carrot and stick, a a doggy treat and also probably a clip round the ear. Um, And and those imprint, that imprinting, that kind of socialised experience means that our behaviours will respond accordingly. So my children are hopefully learning what is good to do and what is bad to do. Now I hope that when they grow up they feel that they've got quite a good balance of the carrot and the stick, that they haven't kind of got just one or the other. We all hope that we discipline our children or our dogs or whatever it is that we're trying to discipline into, into behaviours which are positive in the long run. But those things can't be guaranteed. And so depending on what we've experienced, we'll lean towards a particular direction as we grow up. Depending on what we've experienced in our childhoods, in, in our early history, we will have a leaning towards or a leaning away from particular behaviours. 
So uh, psychologists and, and analysts look at, a lot at the early relationships between mother and child and father and child and siblings and society at large to say, what, can, what sense can we make of this? How have your behaviours, uh, how has your experience in early childhood begun to have an impact on your day-to-day -day life today? Now, that is what we call the journey of psychotherapy or psychoanalysis, and it's not something we can do collectively. It wouldn't be helpful for us to do that collectively. The key learning point I'd want to make is that experiences in childhood and experience in early life are still held in the unconscious and have some part to play in understanding some of our behaviours today. And I've met, this isn't a young man or a young woman's game, I've met people who are in their 60s and 70s and having psychoanalysis who are saying, wow, I never realised I've been doing this my whole life because actually when I was four or five, I still remember my first experience of, of this sort of abandonment or this sort of, you know, violent experience or this sort of smothering experience, this overly loving experience. And ever since I've been behaving in this particular way. So the key point is recognising really here today that, that actually what is in our unconscious mind is significant to how we live our lives. And our past can have a strong influence upon our present. Some people would say our pasts have the greatest influence on our present. But I would argue as a Christian leader that actually God can deal with our pasts, liberate us from the bonds of our pasts, and actually free us to live a more free uh, life today, here and now. It's part of the reason I'm a Christian, because I believe that we can get that sort of liberation. Liberation, though, isn't forgetting. And very often, as I say, the Holy Spirit will illuminate some of these things uh, that we need to deal with. The work that we can do, in which we're going to have a break in just two minutes, the work that we can do here is not really dealing deeply with the experiences that you've had in the unconscious. But there are a few emotions from the past which do have a strong impact on us day to day, and they're often held in our pre-conscious minds. And they come up when they are stimulated through different spikes, and they are issues of guilt and shame. And those things aren't necessarily related strongly to what's held in the unconscious, but those two things, guilt and shame, are things that we can, if you like, approach through cognitive behavioural therapy, which is the, the, tool, the, the tools that we're using in this course, and help you to begin to engage with those things in order that you might live more freely today. But if you hold the idea of cognitive behavioural therapy and guilt and shame in mind, and also recognise this model for psychoanalysis, you can see how the two things will fit together. And I don't want you to leave this first section of the session afraid of this, okay? But actually to be comfortable with this idea. And so spiritually to say, it's okay. My experiences don't need to be valued according to someone else's, they're my experiences, and I want to hold the whole, recognising that Will's probably right. Some of my past experiences have had a strong impact upon the way I'm living my life today. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. That's just how life is. And I'm going to think about how guilt and shame have been impacting my life and from my past in this next session. Okay. Is there, are there any questions before we have a quick break? Yes, Mike.
Is there a time cutoff between the pre-conscious and the unconscious? There isn't actually. I've just put this dotted line here just to demonstrate that there is a sort of, there's a depth to this. Um, uh, you know, Jung has kind of lots of lots more strata of consciousness um, than, than than Freud does. Uh, the, the, I'd say this is relatively fluid between the three, because something can come out of our unconscious and become conscious very very quickly, and something can be hanging around in our pre-conscious for a long time and not actually be realised by the conscious. So uh, it's quite fluid. Um, I think I'd, I'd use it like a filing system. On, have you, do you use Windows at work? Yeah, I guess so. Okay. Well, in your filing system on Windows, you'll probably find that there are files that you're now unconscious of because they've been on your computer's hard drive for so long, you're not even sure that they're there. But one day when you're searching around for something at BT that has been long lost in the annals of history, you'll suddenly click on a file which you just is within a file is within a file and suddenly a whole load of paperwork that someone did 10 years ago will appear and it will become very conscious to you. And so that, that sort of interchange, the idea of bringing stuff out is often what happens in our experience unless we're actively suppressing, repressing or denying that that material is there. So we talked about that in the week one, how we can sort of say no not interested, I'm not present to any of this material, and we can actually subconsciously repress what's been going on. Great, let's have a, a five-minute break. We'll start again at um, just after 20 past. Have another cup of tea, stretch your legs, talk to your neighbour, and uh, just let that first little bit um, soak in. If you don't know the people around you, you might want to introduce yourself, say hello, ask them how they're getting on. The, the purpose of this course, really, I guess, is to help you in part to grow. Um, we talked about emotional growth last week. But also to recognise that because of our life experiences, we can find ourselves uh, living in something of a box. And um, I, I mentioned to you the Easter verse that we are using this year, John 10.10, 10, I've come that you might have life and have it in its fullness. It's, it's a burden to me uh, as a Christian that I might help people to live as full a life as they might possibly live. That doesn't mean that we're all going to kind of hit the Route 66 and with a car Airstream caravan and kind of go surfing and kind of become artisans for the rest of our lives. That's not what life looks like. But um, the idea that we, we potentially, you know, could find ourselves in, inside something of a box, at least a box of a few sides, is a realistic one. Um, I, I, think, I think the, the challenge, the kind of the reality of life is that through our experiences and through behaviours of ourselves and others, we can find ourselves somehow um, standing in this place. And I, I, would, I would argue that if we, are, if we are using our natural form, remember that term I used last week, that we've kind of fallen into life and we have become unreflective of life, we can become unaware of the boundaries and the walls that we've put up around ourselves. And, and those boundaries and walls often are caused by uh, sins. They are the mistakes that we've made. I'll explain that in a minute. The acts of others. And, and events which are neutral. So, if you think about three sides to this box, we've got sin here, the acts of others here, and neutral events here. And 
because of the experiences that we go through, we can build kind of walls around us that shield us. I mentioned last week the idea of maladaptive uh, behaviours. These were behaviours that protected us initially, but became problematic later on. So if, for example, the acts of others is significant, has significant impact on my life, if someone's acted very badly or abusively against me, the likelihood is that, that because of that experience, I'll build a wall around me to protect me from others. Now, if in some way I've been violated by someone else, the challenge is that with this particular wall, I might add to that wall a rule that says don't trust anyone. Don't trust anyone. Now, if I've experienced that violation and I've made a rule don't trust anyone, why is that maladaptive? What would that rule, how would that rule impact me within that box? Any ideas from the floor? Okay, that's great. You're judging everyone by the actions of one person and are all people the same? Is everyone in the world untrustworthy? No. What are relationships built on? Okay, trust. So if this person's created a rule in their box that says don't trust anyone, and everyone that they interact with they are treating with that rule, effectively what are they doing? They're isolating themselves by terminating all relationships. Yeah? They're basically saying, I cannot have a relationship with anyone because no one is trustworthy. So this behaviour has become maladaptive because initially it was helpful. Initially it protected the person from potentially being violated or abused in some way. But latterly it becomes maladaptive and actually it does the opposite of what the person actually wants. Yeah? And so some people make it a rule never to trust anyone. And very often people who've been through very, very painful, uh, negative and abusive experiences in life find this is a rule that's developed in them. And this is just an example of one of millions and millions of different rules that we could create. Now, the sin side is, is interesting because this is, on this side we've, we've been a victim of the acts of others, but on this side we've been a victim of our own decisions. Okay? So... Everyone, we believe, has made significant mistakes. The Christian word we use is sins. But I don't think anyone in this room would suggest for a minute that they hadn't made a whole heap of mistakes in their lives. And they're things that have damaged ourselves, uh, damaged other people, offended God if you're a Christian. And those events can also cause us to uh, create rules in our box. We can say things like, I am not safe. Yeah, or I am unclean. Or I deserve to be rejected. So, this side of the wall becomes maladaptive too. Why might someone who had had a violent outburst against someone in the past adopt that rule, I am not safe? Why might they? What what, what could the reason be for that, Anita? Okay, that's brilliant. They're scared that they're going to hurt someone again in the future. So someone, maybe they got drunk and they lashed out a friend or a partner and uh, this behaviour 
meant that they led them to believe that they were not a safe person. Now, of course, the reality might be that they are not a safe person. But what we're trying to do here is understand how we can get free as people in this particular room. If this, at this time, say it's a violent person, maybe they recognise something that's true about them. They are not safe. And so they go into rehabilitation and they learn about their anger impulses and they become safe. If they then become safe but they carry this rule, I am not safe for the rest of their lives, what will happen to them? What will happen? What's their experience going to be? They won't have any relationships with anyone, okay? Because ultimately they're withdrawing from everyone and saying, I'm not a safe person because of the thing that I did in the past. Uh, The I am unclean one. This is a really common one. This idea that actually I am guilty and I deserve to have any relationships. And this is something that's common, you know, when uh, I've counseled people who've had relational breakdown for one reason or another. I'll talk about responsibility pie in a minute. You know, they think, oh, I, I, I'm, I'm unclean. I made a mistake or the relationship broke down. Therefore, I don't deserve to have another relationship. I deserve to be left out in the cold. You'll know these things are true because you'll know friends who've punished themselves unendingly for mistakes that they've made in the past. And you've said to them, don't be so hard on yourself. Isn't it time to sort of get over that now and move on? So these things can become life rules. I deserve to be rejected. That's a really common one. You know, people think, um, well, you know, I haven't, I haven't performed well enough. I haven't done the right thing. I've made this particular mistake. I deserve to be rejected by other people. So these become maladaptive life rules. And then the events one can be a bit more innocuous. So, for example, we might find ourselves, as I did, linked to a terrorist attack in London. Now, it was an event. You, you could say it was an event that was caused by the acts of others, but ultimately whilst the event took place, I was in a situation where an event, whether it was driven by others or not, happened. It was a happenstance. I happened to be there at that particular time and my experience of that event potentially made me decide never use the tube. Now that might sound like a very light penalty to pay, if you like, in terms of lifestyle. But this idea of like never using the tube again was quite a powerful one for me. So when I found myself going onto the tube after the, after the London bombings, you know, I would kind of force myself to go on the tube and then I'd feel very panicky and often gripped onto those yellow tube bar things really tightly so my hands would get all sweaty and I'd start feeling very panicky. And then I'd start looking around the tube to see if I could see anyone with a backpack or a rucksack or a big bag who could potentially be a terrorist. And then I'd sort of move down the carriage and sort of stand behind the glass walls and you know, sometimes even want to get off the tube and then wait for another tube to get back on that felt more safe. So this initially made sense, never use the tube because you could be terrorised on the tube, but luckily it becomes a restriction on your life because you start avoiding situations in case something happened again. So it becomes maladaptive when all your friends are going to a party on the tube and you're saying, oh no, I can't go because I can't use the tube. So what happens to you? You become isolated, you end up in your box, you stop doing the things that you want to do, all because of past experience. So everything on this page is a demonstration of how our past is impacting our futures right now. It's interesting, isn't it? And for all of you in different ways, 
all of the sides of this box will be a reality. There will be the impact of the acts of others, there will be the impact of the sins that you've committed, and there will be the impact of events in your experience. Anyone who denies this, is just, they're just in denial. It's not like, you know, there's nothing we can say. It's not, not our experience. To a greater or to a lesser degree, we will develop an understanding of events and their consequences for us, which will lead us to these different behaviours. Okay? So, that's something I want you to hold in your mind, because it's possible to engage with all these different sides of the box and actually uh, find some resolution. I want to just introduce you to our old friends, uh, guilt and shame, because in our experience of creating maladaptive behaviours, particularly when it comes to dealing with the, event, the acts of others and the sins of ourselves, they will create a lot of energy around us finding rules that seem to punish us, okay? So one of the great drivers for us living in a box are the experiences of these two emotions, guilt and shame. If you think about it, the events one is often quite practical and pragmatic. I mustn't go to X because it will be unsafe. So they tend to be more anxiety-related. Whereas actually the acts of others against us and the acts of ourselves against ourselves tend to be laden with a sense of punishment. If you look back at the uh, script I've just drawn, you'll see ideas. I am unclean. I deserve to be rejected. Don't trust. These things are kind of punishing. Yeah. Um, this idea of sin is this is just this, this is the activator for these things. These are the things that we have actually done. That's what I mean. Why are they necessarily sinful things which can lead to those things? Somebody can have a feeling of self rejection without having done anything sinful. No, 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 that's, that's true, Nigel. I'm not saying that th- th- these are directly the consequence of this, but these on their own could be inconsequential. Yeah? So this is just saying. This is just an explanation of this. What we're saying is that we've all done things, we have all done sins, yeah? And the the, the consequences of our sins are very often these things. This is not a full explanation of this. So we could feel, for example, I deserve to be rejected just because we've got low self-esteem, unrelated to anything that we've particularly done. That's absolutely true. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. I'm just saying, if we deal with these, these, and these, we're going a long way towards resolving a lot of these, not the whole, ba- the whole bag. And there's millions of variations of this. So basically saying that w- w- when, you've, when you've done something, when you've, when you've broken your own rules or God's standards, very often the consequence of those are to build a wall, yeah? It's not all of the walls, it's a, a wall. So it's just a category, basically, that I'm explaining. Is that, is that okay? You understand what I mean? So if you, the, the, the link is not the explanation. The link is saying when we've committed sin or done wrong, the consequences of that are very often that we'll create life rules which will be inhibiting. Okay? Now, if we think about the, gener- the power generated by our experiences, by our emotions, uh, you, you have to look at guilt and shame as being two of the most powerful 
I, I want to just explain shame first, because this is a really early emotion. Actually, uh, psychotherapists believe that we experience shame from 15 months. So really early in our life. And I, I, would, I would kind of put a line here, a tic-tac line, between these two to say these are not the same emotion. I'd be really clear about that. Guilt and shame are not brothers and sisters. They're not, they're not siblings. They are different emotions. They can feel similar, but they are actually different. Shame is, is a kind of a mist, really. And this is much more linked to self-esteem, how we kind of value ourselves or qualify ourselves. And we can feel okay, and then we can uh, find ourselves reappraising ourselves, looking at ourselves again, and shame can come up in us. We can ruminate about it. That means we can think about it round, round, round. Why am I not a good person? And we can deny it. And then we can find ourselves in this cycle of toxic shame where our shame is not resolved. We just find that our shame is impacting our day-to-day experience. And shame can be generated by life events. So shame can often be generated by events that have taken place in our lives and often the acts of others. And I know as someone who's bullied at school um, when I was a, a very young man, that I experienced a lot of shame relating to bullying. And I spent a long time trying to understand that. And it was interesting because the shame relating to bullying was shame that I carried about myself, not anger that I felt towards my bullies, although shame and anger can be linked. So it's quite interesting shame because shame corrodes your inner sense of value. And actually, I, I experienced a lot of shame as someone who's bullied because I felt embarrassed about myself that other people had picked me out for this particular activity. When actually, consequentially, I could have been anyone in a crowd. I just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And then when the cycle of bullying came about, I found myself in a cycle of toxic shame. Because shame, is, shame dwells in, in secret areas of our lives. So if you feel ashamed, you hide your shame, you deny it or you ruminate about it, and you try and present an exterior which is well qualified. But actually inside, you're feeling less than. And I think shame is best described as being less than. It's like that feeling that you might have in a crowd where you feel everyone else deserves to be there apart from you, that actually you're not meeting the grade. And, and as I say, shame is like a mist, it's very pervasive, it's very damaging, and often it relates to the experiences that we've had at the hands of others that have made us feel ashamed of ourselves. Freud would go right back to our very early childhoods and would say, you know, this, this is part of our sexual identity being awakened and being humiliated. I, I don't necessarily agree with all Freud's classifications on, on the sexuality and sexual outworkings, but I have this sense that he's onto something when he thinks about that sort of humiliation and embarrassment that shame provides. And we, we talk about resolutions to these things in a minute, but it's helpful to know that shame is a very private emotion and it's very disconnected from our experiences in, in, the, very, in, in the material sense. Guilt, on the other hand, is something we can really address well here. Some people say to me, um, oh, why would I want to go to church? I feel guilty enough as it is. Uh, that's something gone wrong there, hasn't it? If, if people think that, um, why would I come to church? Because I feel guilty enough as it is, as if church provides you with a new feeling of guilt. I'd like to think that wasn't true, but I think potentially people do feel more guilty when they come to church. I like to think it's because they've, they've kind of awakened in them 
something that was in the unconscious, but which God is now bringing into the conscious mind, that actually our, uh, Timothy talks about the renewing of our minds, and actually that our consciences are also renewed. And certainly, when I became a Christian, I certainly realised that things I was doing and saying weren't good, and before I hadn't thought there was anything wrong with them. So my conscience was heightened by God. But I think that's a good thing, so long as guilt leads us somewhere. The thing is, the Christian message is not that we wallow in guilt, or that we live in punish, self-punishment and recrimination, or behind the high walls of the box. The Christian message is that we receive forgiveness and we find restoration. The cycle of guilt starts with obviously being okay, and then we move into sin, and then we offend our standard, and we would say we offend ultimately offending the standards of God. And then we move into a place of guilt, and following guilt, we should move into a place of remorse, which is actually realising what it is that's caused our guilt, and then we move into repentance, and then we find restoration and we're okay again. <clears throat> so that's the cycle, simply put. But of course, the reality for many of us will be that guilt and shame are very pervasive and very, very hard to overcome. So some of you will think, I've, I'm being forgiven by God, I've been forgiven by whoever I've wronged, but I still feel terrible. And when, I come, when things come to my mind, I feel awfully guilty about them, even though I know I'm materially forgiven. Who, who has an experience like that? Does anyone? I, I have an experience like that. So I'm the leader of the church. So I sometimes feel, I feel, I know I'm forgiven by God, but I feel unforgiven in myself. And what can be really interesting is, when um, you might have an associated encounter, what I call a spike. So someone says, oh, so-and-so did this, uh, and they really messed up. And then you think, oh, yeah, I probably did that too. And then you feel terribly guilty about some you know, mistakes you made when you were a drunk student 20 years ago. But those things come back very, very powerfully. And you can feel very, very strong feelings very, very quickly. And if you've been traumatised in any way, or obviously if you've suffered any form of abuse, then you can feel associated guilt, which is misplaced, because ultimately you were a victim. But the mind does a really interesting job on us when it comes to guilt. And that's why uh, we're going to look at the idea of, of making a responsibility pie. Because what, what, wanna, what I'm going to say to you is that this idea of bringing things to mind, of becoming conscious, actually enables us to enter into dealing with our past in a truly godly and responsible way. And I think there's real release and freedom for Christian people in all of this. I'm actually writing a new book about it called The Guilt Trip, although there's a film that's now coming out called The Guilt Trip, so I'm thinking about having to change the title depending on how good the film is. Um, but, but this, this idea is that, actually, we talked about the carrot and the stick and how, right at the beginning of the session, we said how many of those memories related to someone else were positive and well-held. Therefore, how much more strongly would you, hear, would you feel the negative emotions of early experiences? Yeah? So what we, the, the, the premise of that was that if you've experienced bad things when you were a young person, you'll remember those emotions more powerfully than you would good things. Because actually bad news is more memorable than good news. The mind filters out anything that might be a threat to us. So the, at the beginning I said you've all won a million pounds. But imagine if I said you've all entered this room and actually it's really unsafe. 
you'd all suddenly feel very, very uncomfortable and you'd carry that memory much more firmly than the one about willing a million pounds. Debbie. I did mention the idea of suppression and repression, but what it would say to you is to be completely relaxed about this. Just to allow God to bring out those things which are pertinent at that time that he chooses to bring them about. One of the big mistakes that people have made with psychotherapy and the like is this idea of going fishing for nasty things that might be in the unconscious. Don't be afraid of what you don't know, because that becomes a new level of fear. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. There's lots of stuff that we just we won't remember, which is, as I say, it's a, it's a vast area of our minds. We won't, we won't recall it because we're not, we're not trying to recall it and it's not pertinent to recall it. So that, that's, that's the stuff to just to leave there. But the stuff that's activating our experience now, the negative stuff, particularly like the guilt and shame, is stuff we can deal with. So the reason I showed you the iceberg was to say the stuff down there is having an impact on us now but we can only deal with what's in our hands right now. And for many people, it's this idea of guilt and shame. I was trying to explain to you that bad news is much more quickly remembered than good news and is much more powerful on your emotions. So why are the newspapers filled with you know, 28 pages of really bad news? Because it catches your attention. Newspapers which have a really horrible front cover sell far more than newspapers that have a relatively bland front cover because the human mind is trained to pick out the negative and to hold on to the negative. And this is also true with your own guilt. So imagine that something brings... What's brought to mind is this idea of a relationship breakdown, really common source of guilt for many people. I had some relationships before I married Lou... And when I was struggling with guilt and shame, I would believe that my responsibility in that relationship was far greater than it really was. I'm sure that many of you will relate to this idea. So when we think about badness, about the guilt that we carry, we think, for example, it's a two-player game. I'm team one. And the person who's involved in this cycle of guilt and shame is in team two. And this is the piece of cake that we've got to share responsibility for. So when you think about the relationship breakdown, what is normative for most people when they're thinking about their guilt-laden experience is that team two are responsible for that much of the pie. As in, they are that much responsible for the breakdown of this relationship. And that team one, that's you, you're predominantly responsible for the negative that happen, the negative thing, things that happen in this relationship. So you carry a huge amount of guilt and shame about this relationship and about the breakdown of this relationship and about all the things that you did wrong in this relationship, yet you exonerate team two by saying, well, it wasn't really their fault. It wasn't really, their, it wasn't, it wasn't really down to them. 
it was kind of my fault, I did it wrong, and I, I, I deserve the blame, I deserve the punishment. Therefore, I'll write myself a life rule saying, I'm bad at relationships and I probably shouldn't have another one again. Yeah? So this is how these rules come about. So people who, are in team one, the person in team one, if I challenged them on this, they would think of every bad thing that they ever said or did or thought within the context of this relationship breakdown. They're thinking of every time they swore, every bad thought that they had, every time they were unreasonable, and their memory would be spiked by all of these negative experiences which corroborate their belief that actually they deserve to be punished because they are greatly responsible. So I'm just using this relationship breakdown as an idea. It's not pointed at anyone. It's just an idea, but it's a helpful idea because it's a very clear two-player game. When you think about, let's, let's talk about, I hope this isn't too sensitive to anyone particularly, but let's talk about relationship breakdown. What, 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 what are some of the causes of relationship breakdown in t- today's society? What, shout them out, there's loads of them. Infidelity. Okay, infidelity. So there's a possibility that there was, an inf- there was infidelity in this relationship. But we'll, 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 we'll put that as a piece of the pie, potentially. I mean, that's a pretty negative piece of the pie, but it's potentially there. Other, other things that cause relationship, sorry. Lying. Lying, Okay. That's another thing that's pretty negative, but we'll give it another slim piece of the pie. Other, other more regular things? Poor communication. Okay, that's a pretty big one. Let's give that a decent piece of the pie. What else is there out there? Money. Excellent. Money is a huge one in our society. I think about a third of relationships break down because of financial difficulties and pressures. Okay, a lack of love. So, sort of an emotional, emotional breakdown in the relationship. That's, that's a decent piece of the pie. What else is there? Boredom. Okay. So, again, that's sort of emotional, an, an emotional disconnect. Different worldview. World Excellent. Yeah. Great. Other things? Sexual incompatibility. That's another piece of the pie. Great. Other things? Sorry? Drug and alcohol abuse, okay, that's definitely a piece of the pie. Okay, are there any other things? Selfishness, okay. It's brilliant, you're proving such a good point to me here. Yeah, anything else? Sorry? Cruelty, Cruelty. wow, okay. Anything else? Children, okay, yeah. Wow, that's pretty harsh. Okay, let's stop there. Now, You've just proved something to me. That is that we are much, much more able to pull out negative things about our experiences that are recriminating than we are positive or natural events. Yeah? So what most people did was tell me something negative that deserved guilt and shame. Because ultimately we all believe that we deserve it, that there must be a point behind it, that this is reality for most people. So we think there must be a negative justification here. We must feel a huge amount of guilt and shame. So we start talking about infidelity and violence and jealousy and you know, all sorts of really strongly negative experiences. When for most people, relationship breakdowns happen for relatively innocuous reasons, but certainly within nearly all of those stated, maybe apart from marital infidelity in some circumstances and violence within a relationship, most of those are two-player games. Yeah? Who, who, who's responsible for you know, the, finance, the financial difficulty of the environment in which we live? Who, who's responsible for communication breakdown if it's not two people? You know, who's responsible for the challenges faced by uh, intercultural marriage and you know, 
different styles? Who's responsible for uh, the challenge of working away from your partner for long periods of time? You know, who's responsible for the, for the difficulty of having children who don't sleep very well at night? You know, who's responsible for all these things? Either team one or team two? Both teams, or maybe even no one. Maybe even just events, yeah? Now, the Christians amongst you, amongst you are getting slightly nervous here because you think well, what I'm trying to do is trying to eradicate guilt uh, and suggest that there is no such thing as sin, which is totally not what I'm trying to do. What I'm trying to do is demonstrate what a responsibility pie actually looks like. When we think back about our experiences, we tend, because we're egocentric, something that I said last week, you remember, the ego is about me, we tend to believe that it's all our fault. And so actually, we absorb a lot of what we call false or neurotic guilt. So we become guilty about things that actually we cannot help. So rather than confessing those sins that we have committed, we start taking responsibility for things that we haven't done and acting in ways that actually that are negative and actually are maladaptive. We would rather confess more than we've done and know that we're forgiven then actually forget a couple of things and then feel that we might potentially be unforgiven. Because the archetype of God that we have in our minds is very often a very stick-laden God who doesn't really want to forgive us. And for who, if we've got the equation slightly wrong, will probably punish us. Yeah? So we have, a, we have a leaning towards wanting to be punished and we have a belief that actually we're probably more culpable than we actually are. Now by looking at this idea of responsibility pie, we can look back at events and then proportion responsibility accordingly. And that's really, really helpful when it comes to guilt and shame. Because actually we can begin to say, my life has been strongly influenced by this experience. Rather than running away from it, rather than suppressing it, rather than repressing it, rather than denying it, I'm going to look at it objectively. Now it might be, if you've got some very severe or significant experiences, it might be really helpful to do that with a counsellor. To, to actually talk through events with them. But for many life events, we can just do this ourselves. And actually, we can do it with God. We can sit down and say, right, that event, it's often on my mind. It regularly makes me feel bad. I'm just going to do a responsibility pie about that event. And then I'm going to talk to God, or I'm going to talk to a friend, I'm going to talk to a partner about my part in what went wrong. Or I'm not going to talk to anyone. I'm just going to take responsibility for it. I'm not going to run away from it anymore. And I'm going to recognise my part. So a lot, of, a, lot of, <coughs> a lot of guilt is resolved through recognition, which is happening somewhere around here. Recognition is about saying, I recognise my contribution to this mess. It's painful and it's been damaging to me, but I'm not taking undue responsibility for those parts of it which aren't mine. As a result, what we don't do is we don't find ourselves falling into neurotic guilt and neurotic shame. Now, the thing is, if you're sick and I take you, send you to the doctors next door and they give you some antibiotics, so long as you're genuinely sick, you will get genuinely well again, I hope, because of the medicine that you're using. If you are not genuinely sick and I take you next door and they prescribe you antibiotics, you will not genuinely get well because actually you're not sick in the first place. And this is the problem that so many people, so many particularly Christians have with guilt and shame. Actually, 
they're going to God with stuff that isn't their sickness. And they're asking for forgiveness that stuff isn't their responsibility. So they're not actually going to get the right treatment for them. What we need to do is recognise that where we are guilty, where we are sin-laden, we need to take responsibility, and as Christian leader, I believe we should go to God and ask for forgiveness. But if we are laden with guilt and shame and taking responsibility for what is not ours, then of course, how can we be forgiven for things that we haven't actually done? And this is why shame is so pernicious, because very often the feelings of shame have come out of experiences that have been done to us. People feel incredibly guilty for those things that have been done to them by other people for which they are not responsible. And obviously there's a, a minefield which I don't want to step into, which, you know, which you know, people have to sometimes have to deal with, this reality of I feel bad because my parents did this. And actually sort of going, hold on a minute, why do I feel bad? But talking about that in your family experience, have you noticed how you can feel bad for stuff that's just not stuff that you've done? How your mum can be in a mood and you can find yourself apologising when actually she's the one who's in a mood. You're saying, I'm really sorry, have I done something to offend you? And they're going, no. Boy, you're in a mood. Well, I'm assuming it must be to do with me because I must have done something wrong. And actually, we can all approach life in that kind of a way, thinking I must have done something wrong, carrying guilt and shame forward and then creating the sides of this box saying, actually, I am not safe, I am not clean, I deserve to be rejected. We can create these life mottos powered by guilt and shame. I believe that the Bible is the antidote to guilt and shame, not the producer of it. Because what we're called to do is actually to identify clearly what have we done that has displeased God, hurt our neighbour and damaged ourselves. Let's confess those things and then let's receive forgiveness. And then let's rec recognise in our minds where we are taking a responsibility beyond ourselves. Um, what, one, one Christian leader said to me very clearly when I, when I, I explained what was, what was called um, imposter syndrome, when you're a leader and you don't feel like you're good enough. He said the interesting thing about that is it demonstrates true pride because true pride believes that if you'd done it any other way, then you'd be worthy of the calling on your life. You know, that actually, if true pride says, oh, if I hadn't have messed up, then I would be worthy on my own. When actually the Christian message is, actually no one is worthy, not even one. So we're all here to receive God's grace and be commissioned into his calling. Holding on to the idea of neurotic guilt and shame is about saying, oh, if only I'd done it better, I, I would be worthy of the responsibility that I carry, which is, you know, that's an interesting challenge. Just think a minute about the ugly duckling story. Ugly duckling. He's just there amongst other ducks and uh, looks around and realises everyone else is yellow and small and he's grey and has got a long neck. So what's his experience? His experience is to begin to identify that he's different to begin to withdraw from the group. Ultimately, he makes the decision that with the walls, with the assumptions around his life, his difference, his strangeness, that he needs to fly away to the other lake, side of the lake and die. This is his decision. It's a sad story. He says, I'm going to go to the other lake and I'm going to die quietly. That's really what I need to do. It's a, very, it's a tragic story, isn't it? But when he arrives at the other side of the lake, he sees these swans and he begins to admire them and imagine a life that was free and actually, in his journey from one side of the pond to the other, he's begin, begun to mature. And when he looks into the water, he sees himself no longer as the ugly duckling, but as the swan. And then he recognises that actually, 
he's matured and he's become what he could become fully. The thing is, his maladaptive behaviors could have held him amongst the ducks. His decision to go away, to die to the old self, was the beginning of a new self. And then, you know, who wouldn't want to be a swan rather than a duck when you look at it? So your idea of, you know, this experience of growing is about recognizing how we begin to, we've perceived ourselves and we've distanced ourselves, but we can live in this half-life, in this hinterland of applying these rules to our lives and actually not growing. But when we break out of the box, we're beginning to say, hold on, there must be some completion to this. I must be able to find restoration. I believe that restoration is available to us in Jesus Christ. So, you know, this idea of us growing and becoming these swans is about recognizing that we can knock down some of the sides of these boxes. And I'm going to talk uh, in about five minutes about making new appraisals and how we can actually do this. So we're going to have another break just for five minutes until five past. Have another cup of coffee. Chance to chat to your neighbor. And then I'm going to come back with the final concepts for this evening. And uh, then we'll head on home at half past nine. Okay? <clears throat> okay, let's, uh, let's come back together for our final, our final session. I hope that you're, I think, I can, I think you're, you're appreciating having a few little breaks because it helps the mind, helps the mind to, um, to, to wind down. Just helpful, just to clarify, just having just chatted there, to, just chatted to Nigel. So just, just to be clear... So these three sides of the box, the sin, the acts of others, and events. So I use the word sin. I could have used things that we have done that have breached our own moral code. And the reason I tend not to use that terminology, which is often what's used within psychological circles, are are that I believe in an absolute. So I believe that God's created a kind of absolute, and he is the arbiter of what is moral and right. And therefore, I believe that this isn't just relative to our social code. This is something that is, has infinite value, okay? To be clear, though, th- th- these could have been applied to any one of these sides of the box. You know, we could have these feelings, I am not safe, relative to events or acts, the acts of others, okay? These are just examples. But what I'm trying to clarify is that there are three ways in which we respond, or three stimuli from which we respond, Those things that we've done, that we actually are responsible for, those things that others have done, that they are responsible for, and those things that have happened that no one is necessarily responsible for. We're responding to those three categories, and we're creating the rules accordingly, okay? So that's just a clarification, but these these could have come anywhere. They're just examples, all right? Now, as we go on to um, look at making new appraisals, which is a cognitive behavioural tool. I want to just go back uh, for a moment to Freud's iceberg. And I just want to point out a few things for you that you will find helpful. You'll see other words that I didn't uh, illustrate earlier on. One is the superego, one is the ego, and one is the id. And um, this adds another layer of complexity and hopefully interest to our understanding. Uh, Freud identified the, the sort of the heart or the, the, the self, the, the centre of the person, as really being the ego. Uh, and certainly Carl Gustav Jung talks a lot about the inner child as being the sort of very core of a person's being, the kind of innate them. Now, Freud's argument is that really this is a sort of the seat of 
consciousness, if you like, and this roves around the whole self. But the id is the kind of is kind of a holder for all of the energy, both positive and negative, destructive and creative, and all of the sexual desire and all of the passion and all of the kind of aspiration of a person. And um, and then above the su- the ego, we have the super ego, which is the kind of collective conscience of society, of parents, of our sort of overbearing sense of government, you could say, and that's our over- overwhelming sort of sense of, uh, of responsibility. Now, Freud's argument here is that the superego wants perfection, okay? And this, the, the superego wants us to be good and right all the time. And the id is basically a bit mischievous and wants to be quite difficult and wants to do its own thing aside from the rules. And the the superego's responsibility is to basically negotiate between the superego and the id. So it's basically saying to the id, well, you can't really go and, you know, smash all those plates that are on the dresser because that wouldn't go down very well with your mum. So maybe think of another way to expend your energy, like going outside and having a run in the garden. Okay, so the, the ego is like a negotiator between these two, these two parts of ourselves. And this is quite similar to Pauline theology. Paul says that actually there's this part of him that wants to do the opposite of what is good. Uh, he wants to kind of go crazy and do all sorts of wild stuff. And yet there's something over him, this superego, this sense of God's ideal, which he wants to do. What's going on in the middle is him kind of negotiating between these two parts of himself, thinking, actually, I want to go for what the superego really wants. I don't really want to go for what the id wants. But there being in this natural negotiation and falling down with him, where actually sometimes he finds that the id is overpowering and he does what he doesn't want to do. And sometimes the superego is pretty powerful and he does what the superego wants to do and not what the id wants to do. So you could divide it out into kind of Pauline theology of the old Adam is down here, the new Adam is up here, and here I am in the middle. I'm in a tent. I'm not quite there yet. I'm in my sort of current state of brokenness, and I'm trying to negotiate between these two parts of myself. So this is quite a Pauline expression of design. Um, uh, Freud talks about the id being like a receptacle, a holder, and he, the thing he's, he's, he uses the word libido. Who's heard of the word libido before? That person's got a very lively libido. Well, of course, if you add liberty to id, you get libido. Yeah? The id. My freedom. Yeah? The liberty. My, my inner expression. My inner freedom. So, what we could say about this transaction is that where's guilt and shame in, in, in this? Well, some is held here in the ego. Um, maybe this is what we're wrestling with in many times, the old man or the old woman. But the superego is very interesting. This is what I just want to point out, that, that actually I, I, I see the superego not as a negative because I think that the values that God's instilled in us are partly held in the superego. But also the superego can be very negative. For example, if, you've got, if you had a very, very overbearing mother 
okay, when you were a child, who said, no, don't touch this, don't play with that, don't go near there, don't do this, don't do that, don't do the, uh, don't do the other. That, that imprinting can also become part of the superego. And actually, the superego can become very, very constraining. And actually, the uh, ego can be very crushed by this and can suffer from a lot of, a, a very strong sense of, of anxiety and of guilt and of shame unnecessarily. So an overpowering superego can be very, very oppressive. And what's called Catholic guilt, which is, I'm not picking out the Catholics here, but what's classified in the psychological journals as Catholic guilt, which is basically neurotic guilt, is from the superego of the Catholic church, this idea that actually guilt and shame is really all you have, that actually you need to feel bad in order to be good. Now, I believe that that, and that's within Protestant and Catholic circles, Catholic guilt, it's just a, just a terminology. But what I would say to you is, I don't believe that the Bible is trying to create, or God is trying to create this superego of con- condemnation. In the scriptures it says, no, no condemnation I dread. You know, there's no more condemnation. Because actually, uh, the superego of God over us is one of, of liberation and of reformation. That actually, the id rather than being in rebellion against God, is creatively subservient to God. And therefore, God harnesses our creativity and our design for his glory, which is a great thing. Okay? So there's a little bit of Freudian theory, the id, the ego, and the superhero, and the superego. Now, um, let's think about making new appraisals. This is a tool I want you to go away with. Imagine... Disco Dave. So Disco Dave, he has put on his John Travolta spandex and he's gone to the disco for the night. And on the dance floor, the music is pumping and he steps out onto the dance floor and he starts throwing down his great John Travolta moves, just like Saturday Night Fever. And, and, and whilst he's, he's throwing down his moves, there's this crowd of friends in front of him, they all start laughing. Now at that moment, Disco Dave, he, he just suddenly has that kind of crisis moment where in his head... That little voice says, you look like an idiot. They are all laughing at you. You need to leave the dance floor. So Disco Dave, he turns around, he goes back to the bar, he buys himself half a pint of Strongbow, and he leads on the bar, and he watches his friends having a really good time, and he thinks, I'm never going to dance again. And then he drinks his half pint of Strongbow, and he goes home, and he goes to bed, and he gets up the next day, and he feels depressed, because he loved dancing. So what's happened there is that Disco Dave has had an experience, a response to stimuli. He's made an assumption based on his own cognitive filtering about what has happened and what the value and the meaning of that experience is to him. He's assumed to understand the thoughts and feelings of the group. In terms of responsibility pie, he's taken complete responsibility for the laughter of the people, which is quite grandiose, isn't it? It's quite a grand idea. So he's absolutely responsible for the reason for everyone laughing. And then he's gone home and he's lain down and he's made a life rule for himself. I'm never going to dance again. Now, imagine exactly the same scenario. Disco Dave, he goes to the disco, he's got his John Travolta spandex on, he goes out on the dance floor, he starts throwing down some really big John Travolta moves. All his friends start laughing. He goes back to the bar, he buys half a pint of Strongbow, He thinks, oh my goodness, everyone's laughing at me. This is a nightmare. I must be a terrible dancer. But then he thinks, oh, 
I've done some CBT at uh, St. Peter's Church, and uh, I seem to remember this bit about making new appraisals. So he stands there and he thinks, what new appraisals could I make about my experience? So the first thing he thinks is, well, what could have happened is that someone fell over behind me on the dance floor and all my friends burst into laughter. Okay, so this is, this is the rule, I must not dance. And the first one is, people fell over. Is that likely? Is it possible? Yeah. But it's likely no. So, chances of this happening, 1%. But the fact that he's doing the exercise is a good thing. Now, then he thinks of a new appraisal. I'm going to get you to think of a new appraisal. So someone come out with a new one. What else could have happened? Or why did the group start laughing? Excellent. They saw him enjoying himself. Likelihood? Likelihood of this percentage-wise? Come on. Okay, 50%. Great. Let's have another one. Okay, there was a joke. We'll, we'll put that over here as well with the, with the possibility that people fell over. Maybe there was a, a joke went down in the group. What else, what else could have happened? Come on, explain it to me. Explain it to Disco Dave. What? Okay, they were nervous. They, they felt threatened by his dancing. Chances? 10%. Other things? Excellent. His dancing was funny. Was funny. But was good. Chances? 80%. Excellent. Okay, we've got some new appraisals on the board. People fell over, or maybe people were laughing at a joke. That's, you know, possible. It's a kind of, chances maybe 1%. They saw him enjoying himself, and they were laughing in, with him in enjoyment, 50%. They felt threatened maybe by the quality of his dancing, 10%. His dancing was funny, but it was good, 80% probability. Now, let's break the situation down. Disco Dave goes onto the dance floor. He's wearing white spandex. Is white spandex appealing? No. Everyone say no. Okay. So it's not appealing. So he's dressed funny. John Travolta's dance moves are pretty extreme. Are they funny? Yes. But if he had huge levels of confidence and were dancing really well, would they be entertaining? Yes. They were... It was funny at the time. Oh, they weren't funny. Sorry, I don't want to offend anyone who loves John Travolta and Saturday Night Fever. <laughs> no, I know what you mean, Mark. I know. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. Um, so, he's, he's dancing. But I, I think about the probability of friends laughing and humiliating a friend in public. Chances? Very small. Very small. 1%. So the chances of them laughing at him and humiliating him are actually probably 1%. So his life rule, I must not dance, has a value of 1%. 
Yet, if Disco Dave had left the dance floor that night and gone home on the basis of what he first believed, he would be agreeing with a 1% probability and would actually ruin his freedom and opportunity. Isn't that sad? Yeah? But this, this demonstration proves most of what I've said to you tonight, that we are much, much more likely to believe bad news about us than we are good news. We are much, much more likely to believe that everyone in the group is laughing at us than they are laughing with us. By making new appraisals, what we're actually doing is changing what's called our neurotransmission. That's a big word, isn't it? And our neurotransmission is the transmission of neurons through the synapses of our minds. Imagine your mind is made up of thousands of tiny little wires. Every time you use particular circuits, they become quite hardwired routes for those neurons to travel down. But every time you make a new appraisal, you broaden out those circuits and you use new circuits previously untapped. So the more new appraisals you make, the more realistic you become, the more broad in your thinking and the less entrenched. If you play old 12-inch records and you just keep playing around the same groove, you're going to cut a deep groove, the needle's never going to move. But if you move the needle around on, on, on the record, then you're going to use the whole record. The brain's very much like that. So by making new appraisals, even if at first you don't actually believe them, it will make you more free. It will actually enable you to be more realistic, more objective, and embrace more of life. And I think that's what God wants for you. So this idea of making new appraisals can be applied to everything in your experience, but it can be applied mobile. You don't need a piece of paper to write it down. If you are having one of those moments when you think you might be applying a life rule, I must never do that, or this obviously means X, stop and go, it could mean X, but it could also mean Y, Z, N, and P. Go through the different appraisals, then ask yourself 15 minutes later, what do I actually believe now? Go back to Sue at the water cooler. We're with Sue at the water cooler. Sue's got her sour face on. She's not noticed us. Our first view is Sue must have the hump with us. We stand by the water cooler for another 10 minutes. We're thinking possibly Sue's had a bad day at work, appraisal one. Possibly Sue didn't, meet, didn't notice us, appraisal two. Possibly that Sue uh, is, is, is had a bad news about her employment here, option three. Possibly Sue's playing a joke on me, option four. Can we find an option five? And then we're going to go back to our desk. And then we're going to understand how powerful making new appraisals are. Now, I think that the Bible also helps us to make new appraisals. It's, it's saying, actually, now you see in part, but then you should see f fully, you should see face to face. At the moment, you're just seeing a bit of the picture, but, but actually seek revelation for a bigger picture. Try and understand yourself in the round, not just through your own eyes, but through the eyes of your brothers and sisters in Christ and through God himself. How does God see you? And all Christian teaching about identity is rooted in this whole idea of making new appraisals. It's actually saying, you know, ask God what he actually thinks about you. Adopt the, the posture of someone who actually loves you and cares for you. you know, all of our teaching around self-esteem is all rooted in this whole idea of making new appraisals, not on the basis of what you believe, but on the basis of what God actually believes about you. So this stuff is old hat. It's not brand new. It's good stuff, and it's stuff that you can use. Okay? So, dealing with the past, dealing realistically, 
recognizing the impact of guilt and shame, accepting your piece of the responsibility pie, seeing the influence of the superego on your feelings of guilt and shame, taking responsibility for your bits, but challenging life rules which are maladaptive and limit your freedom, using new appraisals and taking a fresh and new perspective on yourself and asking yourself not what can I run away from from my past, but what can I learn from my past and how can it inform my future positively. That's it. Thanks very much, everyone. Great. Great. See you next week for the present. Um,